Chapter Seven, Part Two of the Life of Cicero, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume Two by Antony Trollope. Chapter Seven: Marcellus Ligarius and Deotarus, Part Two. Side note: B.C. Forty-five, Aetat Sixty-Two. In the spring of the year, Cicero lost his daughter, Tullia. We have first a letter of his to Lepta, a man with whom he had become intimate, saying that he had been kept in Rome by Tullia's confinement, and that now he is still detained, though her health is sufficiently confirmed, by the expectation of obtaining from Dolabella's agents the first repayment of her dowry. The repayment of the divorced lady's marriage portion was a thing of everyday occurrence in Rome, when she was allowed to take away as much as she had brought with her. Cicero, however, failed to get back Tullia's dowry. But he writes in good spirits. He does not think that he cares to travel any more. He has a house at Rome better than any of his villas in the country, and greater rest than in the most desert region. His studies are now never interrupted. He thinks it probable that Lepta will have to come to him before he can be induced to go to Lepta. In the meantime, let the young Lepta take care and read his Hesiod. Then he writes in the spring to Atticus a letter from Antium, and we first hear that Tullia is dead. She had seemed to recover from childbirth, but her strength did not suffice, and she was no more. A boy had been born and was left alive. In subsequent letters we find that Cicero gives instructions concerning him, and speaks of providing for him in his will, but of the child we hear nothing more, and we must surmise that he also died. Of Tullia's death we have no further particulars, but we may well imagine that the troubles of the world had been very heavy on her. The little stranger was being born at the moment of her divorce from her third husband. She was about thirty-two years of age, and it seems that Cicero had taken consolation in her misfortunes from the expected pleasure of her companionship. She was now dead, and he was left alone. She had died in February, and we know nothing of the first outbreak of his sorrow. It appears that he at first buried himself for a while in a villa belonging to Atticus near Rome, and that he then retreated to his own at Astura. From thence, and afterwards from Antium, there are a large number of letters, all dealing with the same subject. He declares himself to be inconsolable, but he does take consolation from two matters, from his books on philosophy, and from an idea which occurs to him that he will perpetuate the name of Tullia for ever by the erection of a monument that shall be as nearly immortal as stones and bricks can make it. His letters to Atticus at this time are tedious to the general reader, because he reiterates so often his instructions as to the purchase of the garden near Rome in which the monument is to be built. But they are at the same time touching and natural. Nothing has been written, he says, for the lessening of grief, which I have not read at your house, but my sorrow breaks through it all. Then he tells Atticus that he too has endeavoured to console himself by writing a treatise on consolation. Whole days I write, not that it does any good. In that he was wrong. He could find no cure for his grief, but he did know that continued occupation would relieve him, and therefore he occupied himself continually. Totos dies scribo. 
by doing so he did contrive not to break his heart. In a subsequent letter he says, Reading and writing do not soften it, but they deaden it. On the Appian Way, a short distance out of Rome, the traveller is shown a picturesque ancient building of enormous strength called the Mole of Caecilia Metella. It is a castle in size, but it is believed to have been the tomb erected to the memory of Caecilia, the daughter of Metellus Creticus, and the wife of Crassus the Rich. History knows of her nothing more, and authentic history hardly knows so much of the stupendous monument. There it stands, however, and is supposed to be proof of what might be done for a Roman lady in the way of perpetuating her memory. She was at any rate older than Tullia, having been the wife of a man older than Tullia's father. If it be the case that this monument be of the date named, it proves to us at least that the notion of erecting such monuments was then prevalent. Some idea of a similar kind, of a monument equally stupendous, and that should last as long, seems to have taken a firm hold of Cicero's mind. He has read all the authors he could find on the subject, and they agree that it shall be done in the fashion he points out. He does not, he says, consult Atticus on the matter, nor on the architecture, for he has already settled on the design of one Cluatius. What he wants Atticus to do for him now is to assist him in buying the spot on which it shall be built. Many gardens near Rome are named. If Drusus makes a difficulty, Atticus must see Damasippus. Then there are those which belong to Sica and to Silius. But at last the matter dies away, and even the gardens are not bought. We are led to imagine that Atticus has been opposed to the monument from first to last, and that the immense cost of constructing such a temple as Cicero had contemplated is proved to him to be injudicious. There is a charming letter written to him at this time by his friend Sulpicius, showing the great feeling entertained for him. But, as I have said before, I doubt whether that or any other phrases of consolation were of service to him. It was necessary for him to wait and bear it, and the more work that he did when he was bearing it, the easier it was borne. Lucaeus and Torquatus wrote to him on the same subject, and we have his answers. Side note. B.C. 45, at 62. In September, Caesar returned from Spain, having at last conquered the Republic. All hope for liberty was now gone. Atticus had instigated Cicero to write something to Caesar as to his victories, something that should be complimentary, and at the same time friendly and familiar. But Cicero had replied that it was impossible. "'When I feel,' he said, that to draw the breath of life is in itself base. How base would be my assent to what has been done! But it is not only that. There are not words in which such a letter ever can be written. Do you not know that Aristotle, when he addressed himself to Alexander, wrote to a youth who had been modest, but then, when he had once heard himself called king, he became proud, cruel, and unrestrained? How, then, shall I now write, in terms which shall suffice for his pride, to the man who has been equalled to Romulus? It was true, Caesar had now returned inflated with such pride that Brutus and Cassius and Casca could no longer endure him. He came back and triumphed over the five lands in which he had conquered, not the enemies of Rome, but Rome itself. 
he triumphed nominally over the Gauls, the Egyptians, the Asiatics of Pontus, over the Africans and the Spaniards, but his triumph was in truth over the Republic. There appears from Suetonius to have been five separate triumphal processions, each at the interval of a few days. Amidst the glory of the first, Vercingetorix was strangled. To the glory of the third was added, as Suetonius tells us, these words, Veni, vidi, vici, displayed on a banner. This, I think, more likely than that he had written them on an official dispatch. We are told that the people of Rome refused to show any pleasure, and that even his own soldiers had enough in them of the Roman spirit to feel resentment at his assumption of the attributes of a king. Cicero makes but little mention of these gala doings in his letters. He did not see them, but wrote back word to Atticus, who had described it all. An absurd pomp, he says, alluding to the carriage of the image of Caesar together with that of the gods, and he applauds the people who would not clap their hands even in approval of the goddess of victory, because she had shown herself in such bad company. There are, however, but three lines on the subject, showing how little there is in that statement of Cornelius Nepos, that he who had read Cicero's letters carefully wanted but little more to be well informed of the history of the day. Caesar was not a man likely to be turned away from his purpose of ruling well by personal pride, less likely, we should say, than any self-made despot dealt with in history. He did make efforts to be as he was before. He endeavoured to live on terms of friendship with his old friends, but the spirit of pride which had taken hold of him was too much for him. Power had got possession of him, and he could not stand against it. It was sad to see the way in which it compelled him to make himself a prey to the conspirators, were it not that we learn from history how impossible it is that a man should raise himself above the control of his fellow-men without suffering. During these days Cicero kept himself in the country, giving himself up to his philosophical writings and indulging in grief for Tullia. Efforts were repeatedly made to bring him to Rome, and he tells Atticus in irony that if he is wanted there simply as an augur, the augurs have nothing to do with the opening of temples. In the same letter he speaks of an interview he has just had with his nephew Quintus, who had come to him in his disgrace. He wants to go to the Parthian war, but he has not money to support him. Then Cicero uses, as he says, the eloquence of Atticus, and holds his tongue. We can imagine how very unpleasant the interview must have been. Cicero, however, decides that he will go up to the city, so that he may have Atticus with him on his birthday. Side note. B.C. 45, Aetat 62. This letter was written towards the close of the year, and Cicero's birthday was the 3rd of January. He then goes to Rome, and undertakes to plead the cause of Deiotarus, the king of Galatia, before Caesar. This very old man had years ago become allied with Pompey, and, as far as we can judge, had been singularly true to his idea of Roman power. He had seen Pompey in all his glory when Pompey had come to fight Mithridates. The Tetrarchs in Asia Minor, of whom this Deiotarus was one, had a hard part to play when the Romans came among them. They were forced to comply either with their natural tendency to resist their oppressors, or else were obliged to fleece their subjects in order to satisfy the cupidity of the invaders. 
we remember Ariobazanes, who sent his subjects in gangs to Rome to be sold as slaves, in order to pay Pompey the interest on his debt. Deotarus had similarly found his best protection in being loyal to Pompey, and had in return been made king of Armenia by a decree of the Roman Senate. He joined Pompey at the Pharsalus, and when the battle was over, returned to his own country to look for further forces wherewith to aid the Republic. Unfortunately for him, Caesar was the conqueror, and Deotarus found himself obliged to assist the conqueror with his troops. Caesar seems never to have forgiven him his friendship for Pompey. He was not a Roman, and was unworthy of forgiveness. Caesar took away from him the kingdom of Armenia, but left him still titular king of Galatia. But this enmity was known in the king's own court, and among his own family. His own daughter's son, one Castor, became desirous of ruining his grandfather, and brought a charge against the king. Caesar had been the king's compelled guest in his journey in quest of Pharnaces, and had passed quickly on. Now, when the war was over, and Caesar had returned from his five conquered nations, Castor came forward with his accusation. Deotarus, according to his grandson, had endeavoured to murder Caesar while Caesar was staying with him. At this distance of time and place we cannot presume to know accurately what the circumstances were, but it appears to have been below the dignity of Caesar to listen to such a charge. He did so, however, and heard more than one speech on the subject delivered in favour of the accused. Brutus spoke on behalf of the aged king, and spoke in vain. Cicero did not speak in vain, for Caesar decided that he would pronounce no verdict till he had himself been again in the East, and had there made further inquiries. He never returned to the East, but the old king lived to fight once more, and again on the losing side. He was true to the party he had taken, and ranged himself with Brutus and Cassius at the field of Philippi. The case was tried, if tried it can be called, in Caesar's private house, in which the audience cannot have been numerous. Caesar seems to have admitted Cicero to say what could be said for his friend, rather than as advocate to plead for his client, so that no one should accuse him, Caesar, of cruelty in condemning the criminal. The speech must have occupied twenty minutes in the delivery, and we are again at a loss to conceive how Caesar should have found the time to listen to it. Cicero declares that he feels the difficulty of pleading in so unusual a place, within the domestic walls of a man's private house, and without any of those accustomed supports to oratory which are to be found in a crowded law court. But, he says, I rest in peace when I look into your eyes and behold your countenance. The speech is full of flattery, but it is turned so adroitly that we almost forgive it. There is a passage in which Cicero compliments the victor on his well-known mercy in his victories, from which we may see how much Caesar thought of the character he had achieved for himself in this particular. Of you alone, O Caesar, is it boasted that no one has fallen under your hands but they who have died with arms in their hands. All who have been taken have been pardoned. No man had been put to death when the absolute fighting was put to an end. Caesar had given quarter to all. It is the modern, generous way of fighting. When our country is invaded and we drive back the invaders, we do not, if victorious, slaughter their chief men. 
Much less when we invade a country do we kill or mutilate all those who have endeavoured to protect their own homes. Caesar has evidently much to boast, and among the Italians he has caused it to be believed. It suited Cicero to assert it in Caesar's ears. Caesar wished to be told of his own clemency among the men of his own country. But because Caesar boasted and Cicero was complacent, posterity is not to run away with the boast and call it true. For all that is great in Caesar's character I am willing to give him credit, but not for mercy, not for any of those divine gifts, the loveliness of which was only beginning to be perceived in those days by some few who were in advance of their time. It was still the maxim of Rome that a supplicatio should be granted only when two thousand of the enemy should have been left on the field. We have something still left of the pagan cruelty about us when we send triumphant words of the numbers slain on the field of battle. We cannot but remember that Caesar had killed the whole senate of the Veneti, a nation dwelling on the coast of Brittany, and had sold all the people as slaves, because they had detained the messengers he had sent to them during his wars in Gaul. Gravius vindicandum statuit. He had thought it necessary to punish them somewhat severely. Therefore he had killed the entire senate, and enslaved the entire people. This is only one of the instances of wholesale horrible cruelty which he committed throughout his war in Gaul, of cruelty so frightful that we shudder as we think of the sufferings of past ages. The ages have gone their way, and the sufferings are lessened by increased humanity. But we cannot allow Cicero's compliment to pass idly by. The Nemo Nisi Armatus referred to Italians, and to Italians we may take it of the upper rank, among whom, for the sake of dramatic effect, Deotarus was placed for the occasion. This was the last of Cicero's casual speeches. It was now near the end of the year, and on the Ides of March following it was fated that Caesar should die. After which there was a lull in the storm for a while, and then Cicero broke out into that which I have called his final scream of liberty. There came the Philippics, and then the end. This speech of which I have given record as spoken pro rege deotaro was the last delivered by him for a private purpose. Forty-two he has spoken hitherto, of which something of the story has been told. The Philippics, of which I have got to speak, are fourteen in number, making the total number of speeches which we possess to be fifty-six. But of those spoken by him we have not a half, and of those which we possess some have been declared by the great critics to be absolutely spurious. The great critics have perhaps been too hard upon them. They have all been polished. Cicero himself was so anxious for his future fame that he led the way in preparing them for the press. Quintilian tells us that Tyro adapted them. Others again have come after and have retouched them, sometimes, no doubt, making them smoother, and striking out morsels which would naturally become unintelligible to later readers. We know what he himself did to the Milo. Others subsequently may have received rougher usage, but still from loving hands. Bits have been lost and other bits interpolated, and in this way have come to us the speeches which we possess. But we know enough of the history of the times, and are sufficient judges of the language, to accept them as upon the whole authentic. The great critic, when he comes upon a passage against which his very soul recoils, on the score of its halting Latinity, 
rises up in wrath and tears the oration to tatters till he will have none of it. One set of objectionable words he encounters after another, till the whole seems to him to be damnable, and the oration is condemned. It has been well to allude to this, because in dealing with these orations it is necessary to point out that every word cannot be accepted as having been spoken as we find it printed. Taken collectively, we may accept them as a stupendous monument of human eloquence and human perseverance. Side note, B.C. 45, at 62. Late in the year, on the twelfth before the calends of January, or the twenty-first of December, there took place a little party at Putieli, the account of which interests us. Cicero entertained Caesar to supper. Though the date is given as above, and though December had originally been intended to signify, as it does with us, a winter month, the year, from want of proper knowledge, had run itself out of order, and the period was now that of October. The amendment of the calendar which was made under Caesar's auspices had not as yet been brought into use, and we must understand that October, the most delightful month of the year, was the period in question. Cicero was staying at his Putelan villa, not far from Baiae, close upon the seashore, the corner of the world most loved by all the great Romans of the day for their retreat in autumn. Putelli, we may imagine, was as pleasant as Baiae, but less fashionable, and, if all that we hear be true, less immoral. Here Cicero had one of his villas, and here, a few months before his death, Caesar came to visit him. He gives, in a very few lines to Atticus, a graphic account of the entertainment. Caesar had sent on word to say that he was coming, so that Cicero was prepared for him. But the lord of all the world had already made himself so evidently the lord, that Cicero could not entertain him without certain of those inner quakings of the heart, which are common to us now when some great magnate may come across our path and demand hospitality for a moment. Cicero jokes at his own solicitude, but nevertheless we know that he has felt it when on the next morning he sent Atticus an account of it. His guest has been a burden to him indeed, but still he does not regret it, for the guest behaved himself so pleasantly. We must remark that Cicero did not ostensibly shake in his shoes before him. Cicero had been consul, and has had to lead the Senate when Caesar was probably anxious to escape himself as an undetected conspirator. Caesar has grown since, but only by degrees. He has not become, as Augustus did, facile princeps. He is aware of his own power, but aware also that it becomes him to ignore his own knowledge. And Cicero is also aware of it, but conscious at the same time of a nominal equality. Caesar is now dictator, has been consul four times, and will be consul again when the new year comes on. But other Romans have been dictator and consul, all of which Caesar feels on the occasion, and shows that he feels it. Cicero feels it also, and endeavours, not quite successfully, to hide it. Caesar has come accompanied by troops. Cicero names two thousand men, probably at random. When Cicero hears that they have come into the neighbourhood, he is terribly put about, till one barber Cassius, a lieutenant in Caesar's employment, comes and reassures him. A camp is made for the men outside in the fields, and a guard is put on to protect the villa. On the following day, about one o'clock, Caesar comes. 
he is shut up at the house of one Philippus, and will admit no one. He is supposed to be transacting accounts with Balbus. We can imagine how Cicero's cooks were boiling and stewing at the time. Then the great man walked down upon the seashore. Rome was the only recognised nation in the world. The others were provinces of Rome, and the rest were outlying barbaric people, hardly as yet fit to be Roman provinces. And he was now Lord of Rome. Did he think of this as he walked on the shore of Puteoli, or of the ceremony he was about to encounter before he ate his dinner? He did not walk long, for at two o'clock he bathed and heard that story about Mamura without moving a muscle. Turn to your Catullus, the fifty-seventh epigram, and read what Caesar had read to him on this occasion, without showing by his face the slightest feeling. It is short enough, but I cannot quote it even in a note, even in Latin. Who told Caesar of the foul words, and why were they read to him on this occasion? He thought but little about them, for he forgave the author, and asked him afterwards to supper. This was at the bath, we may suppose. He then took his siesta, and after that, emeticen agebat. How the Romans went through the daily process and lived is to us a marvel. I think we may say that Cicero did not practice it. Caesar, on this occasion, ate and drank plenteously and with pleasure. It was all well arranged, and the conversation was good of its kind, witty and pleasant. Caesar's couch seems to have been in the midst, and around him lay supping at other tables, his freedmen and the rest of his suite. It was all very well, but still, says Cicero, he was not such a guest as you would welcome back, not one to whom you would say, Come again, I beg, when you return this way. Once is enough. There were no politics talked, nothing of serious matters. Caesar had begun to find now that no use could be made of Cicero for politics. He had tried that, and had given it up. Philology was the subject, the science of literature and languages. Caesar could talk literature as well as Cicero, and turned the conversation in that direction. Cicero was apt and took the desired part, and so the afternoon passed pleasantly, but still with a little feeling that he was glad when his guest was gone. Caesar declared as he went that he would spend one day at Puteoli and another at Baiae. Dolabella had a villa down in those parts, and Cicero knows that Caesar, as he passed by Dolabella's house, rode in the midst of soldiers, in state, as we should say, but that he had not done this anywhere else. He had already promised Dolabella the consulship. Was Cicero mean in his conduct towards Caesar? Up to this moment there had been nothing mean except that Roman flattery which was simply Roman good manners. He had opposed him at Pharsalia, or rather in Macedonia. He had gone across the water, not to fight, for he was no fighting man, but to show on which side he had placed himself. He had done this, not believing in Pompey, but still convinced that it was his duty to let all men know that he was against Caesar. He had resisted every attempt which Caesar had made to purchase his services. Neither with Pompey nor with Caesar did he agree. But with the former, though he feared that a second Sulla would arise should he be victorious, there was some touch of the old republic. Something might have been done then to carry on the government upon the old lines. Caesar had shown his intention to be lord of all, and with that Cicero could hold no sympathy. 
Caesar had seen his position and had respected it. He would have nothing done to drive such a man from Rome. Under these circumstances Cicero consented to live at Rome, or in the neighbourhood, and became a man of letters. It must be remembered that up to the Ides of March he had heard of no conspiracy. The two men, Caesar and Cicero, had agreed to differ, and had talked of philology when they met. There has been, I think, as yet, nothing mean in his conduct. End of chapter 7